0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Almira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. If you have a Bible um, in your hands or on a phone, would you please turn to Mark chapter 2 and we're going to continue in our series in this gospel. And we're going to start in verse 13 and read the passage together here before we get going. Mark chapter 2, verse 13 says this, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Almost 20 years ago, Liz and I uh, were living in a home with uh, another gentleman. And every once in a while, we were in the basement. He was upstairs, and, and you could the sound would travel between the two levels. And um, we could hear a TV show on in the background. And it was kind of a show that was super popular in the 2000s. It was called Jerry Springer. And every once in a while, we heard, Jerry Jerry, that was kind of like the thing with the show, okay? I'm assuming it doesn't, it's not on anymore. It's been a while ago. But the whole idea, the premise of the show was um, shock and awe. Find a way to shock the audience, right? And I think it just kind of um, kept escalating and escalating as the years went on, however many years that that was um, on. And the big idea was the more shock that you can put in front of people, the bigger the ratings will be. And that's still the case today. You'll have shows that are just kind of crazy. They do all kinds of like wild things, and the goal is, you know, bring people to watch the show. Increase, you know, revenue. When we come to this story here in uh, the Gospel of Mark in the second chapter, we see that a another shocking event is happening, but it's not like Jerry Springer, okay? Jesus is not trying to just increase the people that are following him. He's not just trying to kind of systematically um, rile people up so more people will follow him. He's not trying to create like, you know, this crazy kind of following of people who want to be near him just because he does all these crazy, shocking things. But when we come to chapter 2 here, we see that he is doing that very thing. He is actually causing a stir. And he's causing people to question the things that he's doing. And this happens throughout his ministry. And in some senses, it actually does what he, he doesn't want happen is people come to see what is this guy going to do and it begins here in our passage this morning with the word the phrase follow me jesus says follow me now benjamin franklin is attributed to this quote i don't know if he was the one who said this or not but he said nothing is certain in life except death and taxes you've probably heard that before right And the reason why that's kind of a a phrase that has hung on over the last hundred years or more is because people don't like either of those. And maybe they're almost in the same category. They don't like death and they don't like taxes. And in our story today, we're actually introduced to uh, taxation. Okay, it actually comes... um, in to bear on the story. So if you're into taxes here, I mean we all have to pay them, this might be your kind of story, okay? If you're a tax collector, maybe you'll identify with Levi in the story. But just to give you some background into Roman taxation, okay? If you didn't know what you know the Canadian taxation was like, maybe you'll leave this morning with some clarity on the Roman taxation. But it actually really matters to understand what Jesus is doing here. So in the Roman world, taxation was collected through individuals and it was almost like owning a McDonald's franchise. Okay? They would give that job to somebody else to do. And there was three main taxes that you had to pay if you were a, living in the Roman Empire, which went from North Africa all the way up to England at one point, over to, the, you know, to Israel and all the way over to Spain. So this massive territory. The first tax that you would have to pay was called a poll tax, which was just, you exist in the Roman Empire, you live here, you use our roads, you're not being conquered by other kingdoms, you're going to pay a tax for that. The second tax that they would have to pay was a ground tax. And so that was if you... Or a farmer, or if you produce something, you would have to pay a portion of what you produced to the state. So if you grew grain, a tenth of that grain would have to go to the Roman Empire. If you produced wine or oil, a fifth of that would have to go to the Roman Empire. So you had to pay taxes on what you were growing on the land. And then overall, you paid 1% of your annual income. Okay, so those were kind of like bare bones taxes for anybody living in the Roman world. It was pretty cut and dry, quite simple. Another layer of taxation came on individual citizens. And that was specifically for people who ran businesses. Okay, and so if you ran a business and you caught fish, or you made wagons, or whatever you made, when you brought that to the, to the person that you were going to sell that product to, you had to pay a tax on that. And especially if you went from one district to another, there would be like these border crossings, and like we're seeing here in this story, somebody would be actually sitting there, like Levi, in a booth, and the, the people that crossed over the road, you'd have to pay a tax on the goods that you were varying on that road. And, and some reports even say that they had to pay tax on each of the wheels that was going down the road. So if you had a two-wagon wheel, you got, you know, w- X percentage on those two wagons. If you had a four wheels going on the ground, you had to pay on each of those wheels, okay? So get a unicycle, basically is the uh, the line, right? So those layers, but then like the layer that was the most painful. Okay, so if you didn't like taxes, you don't like the sound of all that already. Okay, but then the third layer, which was maybe the the most painful, was this gray area of the tax man or tax, usually a tax man in that time, the person who was actually sitting there at the booth could could charge whatever they wanted, and that charge was for them. Okay, so they would charge all these taxes and then they would kind of calculate in their mind, how much can I get from this person? And in the process, often people would not have the funds to pay that. And so they would actually give loans to these people and they would have their own hired help, almost like, like thugs who would kind of go and collect that so that it ended up being almost a form of extortion. They would have all these landowners who would be dependent on them and who would be owing them money. Now that was the Roman world over the people that they had conquered. And so in Israel, you know, if, if you've studied the New Testament, you know that they were, they were waiting for the Roman world to be conquered and destroyed because they hated the fact that they were there and they were putting all these burdens of statehood on Israel. So the tax... The taxation was one element of pain and kind of like rubbing it in that the Roman world has conquered us. But now here also, another layer of pain to the story here is that it was Levi. A Jewish man who was actually doing the work for the Roman state, for the occupiers. Some people have compared it in different commentaries I was reading. It would be like Jewish collaborators working with Nazi Germany in World War II. That's how they would have viewed a Jew working with the Roman Empire to collect taxation. And so Jews who worked for the Romans were excommunicated from local synagogues, they were disqualified from being witnesses in Jewish court proceedings. And they were essentially a disgrace to their community and would be often cut off completely from their own families. Ostracized, choosing to have money instead of connection to community, choosing to do the work of the empire rather than standing on the side of their own people, Israel. And this is the person of Levi that we're introduced to. This is the perception and the the thoughts that would have gone into the minds of people as they walked by this, this tax collector standing in the booth every day. He's a betrayer of our community. He's against us. All he wants is money. And what does Jesus do? Look again at verse 14. As he passed by, he saw Levi. Jesus actually looked out And saw Levi. He noticed him. Probably when everybody else would have walked by. Probably when everybody else would have said. Don't even look at him. He's working for the empire. He's against us his people. Jesus actually pauses. And looks at him. And not only looks at him. But he asks him. Or he tells him to follow me. So he says there in verse 14. Follow me. And look at Levi instantly and this is Mark's brevity to the story again. He says that he rose and he followed him. What is Jesus inviting him to? Jesus is inviting him to follow him, to become his disciple, like to leave his profession, to leave the tax world, all the income that he was getting to join in with this rabbi who is going around and who is teaching, a new teaching, and who has disciples. Now some of the other disciples like Peter, who would have been a fisherman in that area, they would have probably known Levi. And they would have thought like, Jesus, why are you asking Levi to follow us? Why would you even include him in? Why would you even see him and speak to him? And sometimes, as I was reading the text this week, I thought, that can be us as well. Wondering, you know, why Jesus would even want me, us, you, to even follow him? If he knows everything about us, if he's God, and he can get into our thoughts, and he knows where we fall short, he knows all the things that we've done, would he even still call on you and I to follow him? And what we see here is that he does invite the the, the one that. People in the story would not invite. He actually invites them. He says, come, follow me. And so we are also called to follow him. And in the image of scripture, we are called to follow him. We don't follow him anymore like physically. We don't walk around Galilee watching Jesus, eating with him. We follow him now through the practices of prayer and through scripture and through community together peter says in 1 peter 2 it's like a baby who's eating right in 1 peter 2 1 and 2 it says so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation that that's what it means to follow jesus it's to grow up into salvation to To understand with our minds and our hearts, what does Jesus actually stand for? What does a life that's following him look like? C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, One must train the habit of faith by making sure that some of its main doctrines shall be deliberately held before your mind for some time every day. That is why daily prayers and religious reading and church going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to continually, we have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. Here's the key line, it must be fed. The things that we learn about Christ, they don't just kind of stay there, you know, like a... Uh, a proposition that I understand, like a math equation, and they're just there suddenly. They tend to drift in and out of our minds and in and out of our hearts. And Lewis here is saying, there must be a regular following of Jesus. We have to regularly come back to him. And not just for uh, intellectual knowledge, but actually so that we can experience what is it like to actually walk with Jesus. Henry Nouwen puts it this way, getting answers to my questions is not the goal of my spiritual life. It it may be a good aspect to find out, to, to dig in more into the reality of Christ, but living in the presence of God is the greater calling. Living in the presence of God is our daily calling. And for many of us, we experience that in moments or maybe we've never experienced that at all. And we don't even know that side of following Jesus. To experience his presence as we go into our workplace. As we do the activities of our week. It's not just being able to win an argument. Or being able to answer some questions in my head. It's actually a connection with my heart. And experiencing the presence of God. Jesus' vision for Levi and for us is the, is the vision of a master craftsman who sees the potential that nobody else can see. And there's a story uh, that I read uh, of centuries ago, a large block of marble that was drug into a church for the purpose of being made into a statue. And it was from Florence. And this large piece of marble was brought in. If you've ever seen large pieces of marble, they've got like these kind of cracks and different images. And this one, though, had like a crack in it that was um, no good. And so there was another sculptor who looked at it, and the goal was to make some sort of Old Testament prophet sculpture. And this sculptor looked at it, and he said, no, I can't use this one. It's got that crack. It's got an imperfection. I can't do anything with it. But another sculptor, Michelangelo, looked at this giant piece of marble. And one writer put it this way, there arose in his mind something of immense beauty. And so for two years, Michelangelo chiseled and carved and scraped and worked away. And what we have today, and I don't know if anybody's actually been to Florence and seen this thing, but it's the carving David by Michelangelo. Probably one of the greatest works of sculptural art on the planet, Michelangelo saw the flaw but was able to work and saw actually within this, and I don't know how sculptors do this, within this block that was fractured, saw a masterpiece. And what we get a glimpse of here in this story is that when Jesus looks at Levi, he doesn't see everything that the rest of the world sees. He doesn't see all the cracks. He doesn't see all the, all the choices that Levi has made. They are there. They are on display. But Jesus actually sees the masterpiece within him. He sees the work that can be done through and in this man. And that same calling is the calling for all of us that Jesus has. He sees in us a masterpiece that nobody else maybe can see. He sees a masterpiece that maybe we can't even see. All we see when we look at ourselves or all that we think other people see is the cracks, the broken parts, the things that would discard us and push us to the side. And Levi says, he saw Levi and he said, follow me. The story goes on. In verse 15, we see that Jesus then, when when doing that action, Of including Levi, and uh, and calling him and telling him to follow this rabbi Jesus. Verse 15 says this again. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for they there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So on display, before the people that are around him, is this difference between the way the religious leaders react to being around tax collectors and the sinners of the day and the way Jesus responds to being around them. And it raises another shock and questions in their minds. And right before us, we see these two ways of interacting with individuals. One is a religious way, which is on display throughout the Gospels. And the religious way says this, I act to get my position before God for the benefit of myself. That's what's going through the minds of the religious leaders. They are acting in a way to gain position before God so that it will be personally beneficial for them, either in the present life or in the life to come. And Jesus here is giving us a model of the irreligious, the opposite of that. And it says this, I act out of my position before God for the benefit of others. All right, so Jesus' perspective is actually, I act out of my position, in tune with the Father, in a position and a relationship of love with God the Father. And out of that position, I can act out, in love and care towards other, They are different perspectives. And it's on display here in this story. Bruxy Cavey says it this way. Here is why religion is redundant. Why we don't need religion as our way to God. Because God came to us. And Jesus is on full display of what that looks like. Because he is God incarnate. He shows us what does it look like for a person, because he was a man, fully man, who was God, a person who lives in complete, perfect relationship with God. It actually gives them total freedom to go into places knowing that they are positionally in Christ, they are positionally in a right relationship before God, and now they can act out in a love relationship to others around them. And this view was like a mind blow for those who were watching. Whether the Pharisees, the scribes were actually there, kind of present. Some commentators say they were there, but they were sitting at like separate tables. Others maybe thought they were like looking in the windows, but whatever it was, it shocked them. So Jesus enters into the world of these tax collectors and these sinners. And how does he do it? Just in three ways quickly here. First, he enters through shared experience. So he actually enters by joining them for a meal. He's sitting at the table there eating food with these sinners and tax collectors. He is close to them in that way. So relationships come, and this is just basic kind of relationship building. Relationships come through spending time together. Right through being with other people, so we get that when it comes to like dating or something, or like you know if if you and your wife or your spouse um, or a close friend you want to get to know each other more, you maybe go out for coffee or you go out for a meal and you are kind of sitting face to face, you're sharing an experience, you are together, you are building relationship there, and this is what Jesus is doing through the regular things around him, through such a thing as a meal, he is actually building relationship with people who are, again, on the out, religiously unclean. He's there. He's close with them. He also, secondly, he enters through the embracing of risk. Okay, how many of us love risk? Jesus actually embraced it. Getting close to people who are on the outside, the risk of meeting new people, the risk of being in relationship with other people who you may not know, who may be a part of circles that you are not aware of, that comes with risk. Because anytime you build friendships, anytime you get close to people, you discover, man, all of us, like all of us, have a little bit of a mess in our lives. Or maybe some of us have a lot of a mess okay? And when relationships are built, that kind of crosses over, and that comes with risk. But John Tyson puts it this way. He says, risk unleashes worlds of possibility that even paves the way for other people's destinies. Learn to step into it. Learn to embrace it. Jesus actually was able to embrace the risk. He knew that when he did something as simple as eating a meal with someone, there was going to be risk, there was going to be problems, there was going to be conversations that need to be had. And we see here he embraced it. He took it in. And lastly, Jesus shows us how to kind of be on mission and be near people. He, Jesus, enters by moving first. Jesus is actually the one who moves first to get close to people. He's not waiting, sitting back for sinners and tax collectors just to come to him. He's actually on the front line. He is going close. He is taking that step. Now, many of us kind of grew up with this mindset of um, evangelism or reaching out to our community that, that basically said, man, if we can like, have a beautiful facility like this, that's all clean, free of flies and everything, right? It's beautiful and great. And if we can have like maybe a killer worship set and maybe like an amazing preacher, then like people will like come, they'll hear about this and they'll come and they'll be here and then maybe they'll like hear some preaching and they'll hear the gospel and they'll get saved, okay? We still hope that happens, amen? We still hope that happens. But we are living in this post-Christian, post-enlightenment, post-modern world where more and more people will not step into a church building. People will not just kind of like bravely walk in. Now that, it still can happen. And I know of someone when I was on staff at Woodside, who just randomly walked into the church and ended up staying and getting involved and you know all these things came with it, but the majority of people are not doing that. What their understanding of Christianity is is coming from other sources, not from places like this. So for many of them, it's caricatures, right? It's like the Simpsons. It's Ned Flanders or something. It's, they are seeing stories and it's, kind of a, it's a bit of a joke and that's their view of it. Or for others, it's coming through media, like news outlets. And, you know, Christians are just anti-this, anti-government, anti-love, anti-everything, right? That is their view that they're seeing. Or, or the option is that we go first to them. And we show them Jesus. And we show them weakness and service rather than them coming here. Maybe they'll come, but we will make the first move just like Christ. So we will join in to neighborhood events as they happen around us. We will actually volunteer locally as opportunities come before us. We will enter into sports events or or entering into clubs of some sort where people who are not believers are present and we are actually involved. We will invite neighbors and colleagues if the the questions have been asked of COVID, right, into our home for a meal or maybe our neighbors are even uh, more hospitable than we are and so we find ourselves at their kitchen table. We have the gift of a meal together. We, like Jesus, will make that first step and step out to reach out to people seeing this missional life in action and just as a reminder, because I know sometimes we can hear a sermon like this, or we can think about these things, and we can feel like we need to have like a filled up calendar then full of missional events, because we are like western productive people. So we've got to have something, we've got to like have some sort of story, we've got to be doing something, and let me just remind you like we have to be prepared for the long haul. We have to be prepared for the opportunities that come before us. That things happen in our lives and in the lives of people that we are a part of that that allow for lots of activity or maybe some seasons that don't allow for much at all. But when we have the long game in mind, then we're not like rushed to get a checklist so that we can say that we're being missional, but we're rather open to ask the question, God, where are you leading me today? We actually have space in our heart and our mind to listen to the Holy Spirit when a conversation or an opportunity comes and to say, God, do you want me to step into this? Jesus didn't have to ask that. Jesus was in tune with the Father. And yet we want to follow his example and live on mission and trust that God is working through all the circumstances of life. James one four, I love this that he puts here in chapter 1, verse 4. James says, And let steadfastness have its full effect. James is saying, be patient with the process. Be steadfast in your calling of listening to the Holy Spirit. Faithfully love the people around you. You don't see fruit these first six months, you don't see fruit these first three years. Be steadfast. Trust that God is at work. Believe that God is at work and be steadfast in what he calls you to each and every moment. And so Jesus shows us what it's like actually to live in a totally different world from a religious system. And he ends with this. He ends with verse 17 with a picture of grace. Verse 17 says this, And when Jesus heard it, this is all the questions and all that's going on with the disciples, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus actually quotes to them a saying that many of them would have been familiar with, but he reminds them of his purpose and his place and what grace actually looks like. He's trying to get them to see the things that God is actually really concerned about are the things that Jesus is concerned about. The things that God wants to do, this God that these religious leaders claim to know, are maybe things that shock them that they've never entered into or never even seen before with their eyes. But Jesus is saying, this is why I've come. I've actually come to call sinners, not people who think that they have all their lives in order and that they don't need anybody. They, all, they basically don't even need God. They've got everything tied together. Jesus says, I've come to people who are in need. And so he shocks them with grace. When religion all around them and all around us tells us that there is right sacrifices that we should be giving. There is prayers that we should be praying. There's activity that we should be involved in. There's all kinds of right things to do because all those things will put us in good standing with God, either big G or small G. Jesus says to them, Christianity, the way of Jesus following Jesus is actually a message that says, you need a doctor. You and I need help. The world around us needs help. And we are not the answer to the problem. Jesus is actually the answer to the problem. He is the one who is the great physician. The Apostle Paul in Romans, in in probably the greatest explanation of the gospel, says this in chapter 5. He says, For a while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in our state of sickness and in our state of weakness, God didn't say, okay, you're sick, you're weak, now figure out a way to come to me. He actually said, you are weak and you are in need of a doctor and I'm going to come to you. 1 Peter 2.24 says, he himself, Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Through the sacrifice of Christ, all of us can enter into this healing now that only God can accomplish for us. And so Jesus here shocks them again, many levels of shock, and says, here's the grace, this undeserved kindness from God that he has come actually to people who are weak and in need of a doctor. And Jesus says, I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you as the healer and I'm going to sacrifice myself for your healing. Let's close with this. Um, in 2005, John Malouf was a um, young writer and he had just moved into a new neighborhood In northwestern Chicago. And he just fell in love with the neighborhood. Loved the history. And since he was a writer. He wanted to write a book about the history of this neighborhood. And so he started doing all this research. And writing this book. And the publisher came to him and said. Listen. If you want to get this book published. You need some pictures. Like. You need photos of this neighborhood, you know, over the last 50, 60, 100 years. So go and find like 200 pictures of the neighborhood, which we'll put in this book of this neighborhood. So John went out and started looking for pictures. And he went to like yard sales and garage sales. And he went to estate sales. And he went to this one estate sale of an old nanny who had just all kinds of junk, like a collector, right, of all kinds of things. And there was this huge lot sale of the estate and he just ended up buying like two trunks that were full of old prints, photographic prints, undeveloped film. He took these and looked through them and started seeing some like amazing photography. And he's like, what is this? Is this like a professional photography or like a photographer or how did this happen? And he discovered that, you know, this woman who was this nanny that cared for kids her whole life, throughout these stints of caring for children would be taking pictures. And she would take these kids while she's babysitting them during the day and they would take the train into downtown Chicago or for a while she was in New York City and she would take them into these places and she would do street photography. And so then John Maloof went and he's like, "Okay, I need to get the rest of these." And so he went back to all the people that bought little bits of that estate sale, and he bought every last box that he could find of photographs. And what he ended up finding was this collection of 100 to 150,000 photographs and thousands of rolls of videotape and hundreds of clippings of newspapers. And he ended up discovering, and I put a few pictures up on here, some like amazing photography by this woman named Vivian Meyer, who the world never knew existed. And who never once showed anybody any of her work that she had done. She just took them behind the scenes. And now this work is going around the world in exhibitions, into all the you know, great art galleries, and you can if if you're into photography you've probably heard of this story or heard of her name if you're not you can look her up she's got some amazing street photography and what's amazing is that vivian meyer who often captured herself in self portraits you can see her here on the right was a nanny caring for kids not sharing any photographs with anybody And it reminded me of the possibility of missing out on the joy of what God is actually doing. There's a possibility that you could live your whole life, and whether it was out of fear of showing her photographs, or maybe she just didn't care to share them with anybody, or maybe she just didn't know what to do with them, but these photographs, had it not been for a few people, would have probably ended in the dump. And we never would have seen them. And the possibility of actually missing out on seeing people enter into the joy of beauty and of mastery of a photograph was completely missed by Vivian Meyer. And can I tell you today, for any one of us, we could miss out on what God wants to do in and through us for the very same reasons. Indifference, fear, fear, lack of interest, I mean, go down the list, whatever it is, you and I could miss out on the very thing that God wants to do. To show our neighbors and the people in our workplaces and the people that we interact with the life of Christ through an individually weak person. That's what God wants to show. So that us and the people around us will come to follow Christ. So that we too will experience what it's like to be invited to sit at the table. To sit at the table with other sinners and tax collectors and engineers and nurses and pastors as weak individuals, but knowing this, that seated at the table is also a Savior who wants to be there with us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this passage. Thank you for saving Levi, and thank you for the example of what it looks like to be sinners saved by grace following our Savior Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.